Friends of Europe proudly presents the Frankly Speaking podcast series. We kick off the series with a special weekly focus on the Russia-Ukraine crisis and commentary from our three senior fellows in peace, security and defence studies. Jamie Shea, former Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges at NATO. Paul Taylor, former Reuters journalist, contributing editor at Politico and author of our newly published report on the Black Sea. And Chris... Cremidas Courtney, lecturer for the Institute for Security Governance in Monterey, California. I'm Tracy Dafters, and today I'm joined by Jamie and Paul, who will unpick the latest in the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Recorded live on Tuesday, 8th of February 2022, this is the first podcast in our Frankly Speaking podcast series. So, Jamie, Paul, this week we've seen a lot of diplomatic efforts from uh, French President Macron in Moscow and Kiev and the new German Chancellor speaking with Joe Biden. So can this new wave of diplomacy avert war? Is Macron going on behalf of France or is he going on behalf of Europe? Is this unilateral approach playing into the hands of President Putin, who seems to want to adopt a divide and rule strategy when it comes to the EU? Perhaps let's start with you, Paul. Well, um, certainly there's an awful lot of diplomacy going on and people feel that there is at least a window for diplomacy before any military action might occur. Uh, There are a lot of people who are quite sceptical about all of the talk of imminent military action. And indeed, the United States has removed the word imminent from its description now. Um, But it says that the Russians are are 70% ready uh, for a major military uh, operation in, uh, against Ukraine. Um, the fact is, it's still hard to see how a military action would help President Putin and Russia. So I think that um, people are not entirely convinced, but they are certainly convinced that, that Russia uh, wants to be taken seriously and uh, that they need to uh, achieve some diplomatic result that will enable Russia to pull, uh, pull back and uh, to stand its uh, forces down. And that's what's been going on this week. Um, I think that uh, President Macron, of course, he's running for re-election and he has uh, the presidency of the Council of the European Union. Uh, Although, curiously, the way the EU works, that doesn't mean that he gets to chair the summits, which are chaired by a full-time president of the European Council. Um, So he is going there trying to suggest that he is the voice of Europe. And he's certainly uh, spent an awful lot of time consulting fellow European leaders, as well as consulting NATO and consulting uh, President Joe Biden of the United States before going to Moscow. What he went with appears to have been some suggestion that uh, uh, Ukraine might uh, be uh, willing uh, to to accept a long-term status of neutrality in return for complete guarantees of its uh, security and territorial integrity. Of course, the devil is in the detail. Do the Ukrainians themselves want that neutrality? Neutrality was uh, at one stage in, in Ukraine's constitution, but then after uh, the uh, Russian seizure and annexation of Crimea in 2014, actually, uh, Ukraine then said that it wanted put into its aspiration to join NATO and the European Union into its constitution, where it still is today. So it would be a, a big step for Ukraine to accept Finlandization, as it's being called, 
after the status that Finland had during the Cold War, where it was a free country, had its own economic and uh, political system, but it was not aligned militarily. And that uh, uh, essentially meant that it lived under the shadow of the Soviet Union and was careful in foreign policy not to offend the social Soviet Union. Not clear whether Ukraine will accept that now. But of course, France and Germany both have the capacity to block uh, Ukraine's NATO uh, accession or progress towards it uh, because the, you know, NATO has to decide these things by unanimity. And in 2008, in fact, France and Germany led opposition to putting them on a, a, a clear roadmap to membership. They were given a vague promise that they would one day become members, but without any uh, uh, suggestion as to when or how that would occur. Uh, as, to, as to Chancellor Scholz in Washington, I think there is an attempt to show that Germany is a reliable, dependable ally, and it's not soft on Russia. But I note that uh, Chancellor Scholz, even in the presence of President Biden, was not willing to name the North Stream 2 pipeline as being uh, something that would be affected by sanctions if Russia were to uh, uh, attack Ukraine, even though uh, President Biden said that he would stop the pi that pipeline, which is a Russian-German project in which the United States has no direct involvement. Um, so presumably he would stop it by sanctions against Germany. Um, and uh, uh, Mr. Schultz responded to that by saying that they were completely united and that there would be a unified allied response and a very, very severe one uh, if, if Russia were to invade. So it's obviously politically difficult, perhaps politically impossible for Chancellor Schultz at this time, this stage to explicitly say, if you lay, set, lay a finger on Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 is, is dead. But that's clearly the message that he is being led towards by the Americans. Jamie? Well, Paul, you basically said a, a great deal there. Um, so what can I possibly add uh, to that lengthy introduction? Uh, you're right. Uh, I, I think that clearly you know, there is a compromise out there to be had, which Putin would seem uh, prepared to accept, because, of course, that was one of his basic conditions right from the very beginning, uh, which is that Ukraine should not be allowed to join NATO. So NATO would de facto have to undo its promise of uh, 2008 to offer uh, Ukraine uh, membership of NATO and Georgia too, which we haven't mentioned yet. Georgia has been a little bit on the sidelines, but of course, would NATO keep a promise to Georgia, uh, which is also in a conflict, uh, albeit a frozen one with Moscow, uh, when it uh, rescinded a promise to Ukraine. Uh, I think it would be a bitter pill for NATO and the West to swallow if that did become uh, the uh, result of a compromise. I think you've rightly pointed out that this would be sort of caving into Moscow's military pressure and bullying, the idea that force, at least the threat of force, pays in uh, dictating political outcomes. I think that would be a terrible signal to send to somebody like President Xi in China when he's thinking about reunification with Taiwan or to other authoritarians uh, elsewhere. I think you're right, too, in expressing a certain scepticism that can Russia be trusted uh, to uh, um, 
respect Ukraine's neutrality, uh, given the past precedents. Uh, of course, uh, would uh, Putin uh, be prepared to uh, restore uh, Crimea uh, to uh, Ukraine? Uh, that would be respecting its territorial integrity. I don't think that Putin would accept to do that at all. Or would he, of course, accept that uh, the Minsk agreements can be revised, or at least in terms of making it clear that there has to be a security situation in the Donbass with the departure of the Russian forces uh, and their proxies, uh, and, and then the, the political uh, aspects, which is how Donbass can be given some kind of decentralization or autonomy within the Ukraine constitution, can be settled afterwards. Now, again, Putin has been sort of dragging his feet uh, on those kind of uh, issues. Uh, what about Finland and Sweden joining NATO? Does this sort of prohibition on further NATO enlargement apply to those two countries at a time when obviously Putin's assertiveness has reawakened, not maybe decisively yet, but certainly reawakened the, the debate in, in those countries as, 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 as well. So indeed, it would be accepting a kind of new European security order, which is that the West stops where the West stops, uh, and the rest farther east is now back uh, to the days of the Tsarist Empire, if not the Soviet Union, as a Russian-dominated uh, sphere of influence. So we have a hard division of Europe into what I think fatally would become two different social systems. I, I can't quite believe that you know, uh, a Ukraine which would be pledged in neutrality uh, under Russian military domination would remain a functioning democracy or a free market economy for long. I think the belarization of, of Ukraine would go uh, uh, henceforth as it took on more trappings of a Russian uh, uh, republic. So uh, I, it would be, if you like, perhaps in the short run, uh, a possible way out of the current crisis. But I think that uh, buyer's remorse would set in very quickly in the West in terms of what had been achieved. So the question really is, Paul, for me, uh, is that, you know, given the real military pressure that Russia is uh, still exerting on Ukraine, uh, because the build-up, uh, you referred to this as well, uh, continues, uh, does, that, uh, uh, does that mean that, uh, you know, we are sort of condemned to accept this uh, short-term fix as the only way out? Or if we go back to the sort of Western strategy that we seem to be following until Macron's visit to Moscow, which, uh, as you rightly pointed out, was uh, 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 strong sanctions against Russia, military assistance to Ukraine, uh, being willing, willing to talk to the Russians, particularly about arms control and military stability issues, but not give up on fundamental principles like the enlargement of NATO. Uh, although, uh, of course, that's not a guarantee of success. But at the end of the day, in preserving in the long run Western interest, is it better to go back to that former strategy and stick to it uh, in the belief that with Western unity, Putin will ultimately climb down or uh, because of this uh, desire to avoid any kind of conflict, uh, is this unholy compromise now the better strategy on the table? I, I think, you know, in terms of the major leaders of the West, this is for the next 24 hours as Macron travels to Kiev and tries to sell his deal there or uh, to the United States. I think this is a $64,000 question we need to confront. What, what is the likelihood of Putin backing down now, though, with, with the, the escalation that we've seen over the last weeks and months? Well, Jamie's raised the right question, which is, um, you know, what, what would Putin give if the Russian, if the, if the West were to make this big give uh, and if the Ukrainians were to acquiesce in this big give? Um, 
would, uh, you know, I think it's very unlikely that he would pull out of Crimea. I agree with Jamie. You know, all of the people that I interviewed for my uh, report uh, said, you know, Crimea is not an issue. Crimea is over. Uh, Crimea is finished. And historically, uh, you have to say that, uh, you know, Russians have uh, a legitimate or a historical uh, connection to Crimea that, uh, and its inclusion in Ukraine was uh, in some ways uh, a bit of a historical accident, even if it, was, if it was one that was ratified by Russia itself at the breakup of the Soviet Union. So if, if Putin is not willing to give that, what else will he give? Well, he'll obviously give verbal guarantees, I'm sure, and the, the, those verbal guarantees might end up in writing as well, but they've been in writing before. After all, Putin signed the uh, 1994, wasn't Putin, it was his predecessors, uh, signed the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, uh, in which uh, the, all the nuclear powers, including Russia, guaranteed Ukraine's security and uh, uh, territorial in integrity in return for Ukraine handing over the nuclear weapons, the Soviet nuclear weapons that had been on its territory uh, to uh, the Russian Federation. Uh, so, you know, in, in, in the Ukrainian narrative, it's clear that Russia has already violated security guarantees. But would, you know, the, Putin would, would, for his part, I think, have to at least accept um, uh, sort of demilitarization withdrawal from uh, uh, the Donbass region, which is, is held by uh, Russian-backed and uh, uh, separatists. Uh, that, would, that would have to be on the table and have to be sorted out within the framework of the, of the Minsk uh, uh, process, which was created with France and Germany. Uh, at the table along with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I think also uh, uh, the West should demand that Russia also put an end to other frozen conflicts, uh, such as those in Georgia, uh, over South Ossetia and Abkhazia, uh, and in Moldova over Transdenistria. Um, so, there, you know, there's plenty of work to be done, but uh, those uh, are frozen conflicts which were mostly created at the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union, and which Russia has maintained all, all of which the, the, the common denominator is that they all involve Russian troops on the ground, uh, ostensibly as peacekeepers, um, but in fact, Russia has maintained those in order to deny those countries uh, full, con you know, full control of their territory, and in order to destabilize them as a lever, as a tap that it can turn on and off. So, that would be what the West would have to demand from Putin in exchange. But whether we would get that, I rather doubt. Jamie, what do you think? Well, again, Paul, uh, my sense is that, you know, the West has still got powerful cards. And the sense is, are we sort of giving up our powerful cards before they've really been tried? I mean, the three things that I suppose we have in the Western sort of quiver is, of course, the threat of the sanctions and the EU and the US have done a lot of work to try to make that into a really meaningful sort of package, which, uh, like all sanctions, wouldn't necessarily sort of bring down the Russian economy right away or even totally. But at least over time would have a quite a severe impact. Uh, impact um, on Russia's you know, access to of international financial markets, uh, access to consumer uh, electronics, advanced technologies, you know, energy drilling technologies, all of these kind of things. And Russia still gets more technology from the West 
certainly it does from countries like China. The second card we have, of course, is energy, where it may seem that Russia has the upper hand at the moment with, you know, Gazprom supplies uh, and rising energy prices. But fortunately, the winter is still mild. So hopefully we can get through it. Um, and the West has at least now the EU, the US started coming up with thoughts on a viable alternative strategy, you know, LNG, different markets, uh, better storage, which over time, hopefully, could um, uh, reduce dependency on Russian gas and, and make it therefore harder for Putin to use that sort of gas weapon uh, in, in the future. Uh, the, the, the third uh, aspect, of course, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to the strategy is, is helping the Ukrainians to become more resilient. Uh, now, maybe, yes, it's true, Paul, maybe we started a little bit late in the current crisis, given the Ukrainian uh, military, uh, you know, the access to st uh, stingers and, uh, and, and you know, javelin anti-tank weapons, anti-air weapons, uh, patriots are still not, you know, anti-air weapons not on the table uh, because it takes too long to train the Ukrainians in how to use them. But but at least, you know, the whole effort to really beef up the Ukrainian forces is now underway. Zelensky has called for a, an extra 100,000 soldiers to be recruited. This effort, uh, of course, would make it harder for the Russians to really uh, contemplate, as you said yourself, a serious uh, invasion. Uh, yes, uh, I think you've used this term, Paul, in the past that they can invade, but occupying is a different story. I agree entirely. You know, we've seen from Iraq and, and Afghanistan, you know, how even Western professional militaries get bogged down in urban environments, in blocks of flats uh, against well-armed, you know, local militias very, very, very quickly and start taking very big casualties. Putin you know, remembers what happened to the Soviet military in Afghanistan. So, so the, uh, the track of arming the Ukrainian forces, uh, even if you know it hasn't been smooth, one thinks of the Germans being very hesitant to supply lethal weapons, but still it's, it's ongoing. So my thought of all of this is, you know, the West has still got powerful cards to play, which haven't yet been fully played. Uh, so are we sort of, you know, like in a poker game, caving in and surrendering our best cards, uh, while the other guy uh, in the Kremlin is still largely sort of bluffing? Uh, hence, you guess my overall view, which is to not make these very nasty concessions, uh, but uh, keep uh, the Western policy going just a little bit longer in the hope that, you know, it, it will bear fruit. Because, you know, you've got to ask yourself in any negotiation, I see your finger up, Paul, but, you know, we know what the other guy's interests are. He's made that clear. But how about in our interests? What's in it for us? I'd like to um, bring in some of the comments that we've had from our debating uh, Europe platform um, in which we ask citizens their thoughts. Um, Dan from, from the debating Europe platform says, Russia has a GDP smaller than the state of Texas, yet Western leaders are queuing up to either visit or phone the Kremlin. Are we playing Putin's game by paying him so much attention? Well, yeah, the straight answer to that is, uh, it may have a, a, a small GDP, uh, it's smaller than Italy's, but uh, Russia has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. It has a very capable military, which has been modernized rapidly. Um, and it is right next to, it's on our doorstep and it's involved in conflicts all around Europe. So we can't ignore Russia. We're dependent on Russia. 40% of our uh, uh, gas and oil comes from Russia. Um, and indeed, we get more oil from Russia than we do gas from Russia, but oil is more fungible and easier to replace in international markets. So we can't not talk to Russia. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, there, there's a view that over since the end of the Cold War, 
um, uh, you know, if you look at it from Russia's position, then NATO has been advancing, the West has been advancing more and more towards Russia's borders. And Russia feels in some ways surrounded, and particularly those countries which are in play in the moment in different ways, uh, Ukraine and uh, Belarus, they are the kind of flatlands which protected the Russians twice. Uh, I mean, when I say protected them, enabled them ultimately to defeat invaders from the West uh, under Napoleon and under Hitler. Now, you may say, well, that's, that's ancient history. And today in the 21st century, you know, the nature of warfare has changed. It's about missiles, it's about space, it's about cyber, and it's not about tank divisions rolling towards Moscow. But if you're in Russia's shoes, then, then that's something you have to be concerned about. So I think that it, it makes sense to talk to Russia. And I don't agree with this idea, um, which is sort of a little bit implicit in what Jamie says, that sort of talking to Russia is a concession in itself. You know, uh, you, it's all very well to talk to friends, but you also need to talk to, to adversaries. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, peace is not made spontaneously between friends. It's made, yeah. made between sides that start off from opposing positions. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I don't disagree, Paul. I mean, I'm a believer in talking. You know, Churchill said, uh, George, your is better than war, war. That, Paul, is totally uh, my dictum. I'm totally supportive of diplomacy. And I think that as long as Russia is not invading and is prepared to talk, you know, Putin obviously loves receiving all of these foreign dignitaries in Moscow. It puts the spotlight on him. So he's happy to talk. So, yeah, we, we have to do that. But, but of course, uh, talking is not, you know, a good only in itself. It depends on the messages uh, that one is conveying and uh, the strategy that one's adopting and whether you get anywhere by talking or not talking, you know, uh, uh, talking past each other uh, is not quite as good as talking to each other. But no, so I don't disagree with you on that one, but I am concerned that we send uh, uh, the West at least this clear and consistent message, particularly among, you know, the, 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 the key players who do have influence, the Germans, the Americans, the French, you know, Boris Johnson, at least on his phone calls and he hasn't shown up in person in Moscow uh, yet. And that though that sort of quad, you know, the, the core of the West should remain very much at one uh, on, 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 on all of this. But, but Paul is totally correct, though, when it comes to the fact that Russia may be a small power, but it's invested heavily in its army. Uh, and uh, if it wants to use the military instrument against militarily weaker neighbours, as it demonstrated in Georgia, in Moldova, sending its forces recently to Kazakhstan, uh, that can have a major, major influence in dictating outcomes. However, uh, Paul, one thing, you know, I, I agree with you about Russian history. You know, I, I, I'm a historian of the 20th century. I can see your point. But if Putin is really honest with himself, he knows very well that when he looks around his borders, the one border that he really doesn't have to worry about is the border with NATO. Because, you know, membership of NATO, ironically, uh, and contrary to what Putin says, is a guarantee that you won't be attacked uh, uh, because NATO uh, would never uh, be, you know, be in a situation of permitting any of its member states, let alone the alliance, to attack Russia. Uh, so the best guarantee for your security is to have uh, NATO on your borders, a predictable democratic alliance that, that you know is, is not going to threaten your security. So I rather saw, yeah, I, I get it from, you know, World War One, World War Two, but I think, you know, the, the, the you know, past is not a, a, a future fatality here. I'd like to bring in um, a comment that we also had from the De Debating Europe uh, platform from Natasha, who is concerned that the situation on the borders 
um, with the Ukraine is, is showing that Ukraine is gearing up to restart the war with uh, in eastern Ukraine, in Donbass region, as, as we touched on earlier. I mean, she actually says Russian troops are on standby within Russian territory only because Zelensky had decided to withdraw from the Minsk peace agreement following Biden's promise of military help. Biden, the Biden administration started sending weapons to Ukraine, and obviously that made the Russians wonder whether Ukraine is gearing up to restart the war in eastern Ukraine. Um, and hence, Russian troops are standing by as a preventative measure. Um, and she states that they're not certainly not going to cross the border unless Ukraine attacks eastern Ukraine. What are your thoughts on that to respond to Natasha? Well, I think it shows it shows that the Russian public is being shown a very different movie from the movie that the rest of us are watching. Um, uh, and the idea that Ukraine, with its limited military resources, could present a threat to Russia uh, um, uh, is, um, you know, not serious. Um, that said, um, the concern that Ukraine might be tempted to use force to try and change the status quo in the Donbass region uh, is uh, not impossible to imagine. Uh, Ukraine has acquired, for example, armed drones from Turkey, and it used one of them against uh, rebel forces on the, the line of contact uh, a couple of months ago in October, and that got everybody very excited and attended, attentive. But again, you have to say that is on Ukraine's own territory, a part of which is being held by rebels who are armed and assisted by Russia and with Russian special forces or proxies acting in that region. Indeed, there are reports that Russia has withdrawn some of the Wagner company mercenaries who were sent to um, Mali so as to be able to deploy them in Donbass. I read that a couple of days ago. I don't know if it's true or not. So I think our, 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 our uh, uh, contributor is, is watching a very different movie. And of course, uh, I have to say that uh, the public in Russia, uh, um, you know, have difficulty accessing the kind of information uh, which is available to citizens in the West. And uh, therefore they make their judgments based on what they're being told, which is a very different picture. Jamie? Yeah, I'd just add to that. I, I, I agree totally with Paul there. Uh, I think that it's a bit also unfair to say that, you know, Ukraine is not negotiating seriously in the so-called Minsk II framework, you know, the agreement that was uh, crafted uh, a few years back uh, to uh, allow a resolution of the Donbass dispute. There are two aspects here. One is the political aspect, you know, that Russia wants uh, Donbass to have a, a, a degree of autonomy, decentralization, uh, organize it elections, uh, uh, for instance, uh, whereas uh, there's also the security aspect, which Russia would uh, uh, withdraw its forces, allow Ukrainian forces to go back to their uh, recognized international uh, border, uh, ob observe the ceasefire, disarm the militias, uh, which Russia has armed, as Paul uh, quite rightly pointed out. The problem is, is that Russia loves the political side where the concessions come from Ukraine, you know, organize elections, uh, no international monitoring of the elections, we'll do that ourselves, you know, talk, uh, you, Kiev has got to talk to uh, the so-called representatives of the 
People's Republics of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk and recognize them. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, you, Kiev has to sort of give to Russia a permanent droit de regard uh, over the uh, Donbass, which would no longer come under Ukrainian sovereignty. And yet Russia shows no interest whatsoever, let's be frank, about you know, any of the security aspects. It's dragged its feet on international peacekeepers, frustrated the work of the observers of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, refused to allow the Ukrainian forces to go to the border. So you can understand the President Zelensky thinks, wait a minute, again, you know, uh, I've got to do everything and, and the other side does absolutely nothing. This isn't balanced. So it's not that, you know, uh, Ukraine it doesn't believe in Minsk. It, it, it does, but we need to get back to putting pressure on Russia to see this as part of a single package in which, you know, the security aspects have got to be acted upon as well as the political aspects because otherwise the confidence to move forward simply won't be there so i just wanted to add that but uh, on paul's basic you know alternative reality uh, uh, world uh, i endorse that entirely now going forward uh, what could what can we expect for the next steps in in the next week before we get together again um to unpick the situation I think we can expect intensive diplomacy. Uh, obviously, after uh, uh, President Macron's visit to Ukraine today, we'll know whether the uh, ideas that he uh, discussed with President Putin are in any way acceptable uh, to Ukraine, at least as a starting point for discussions. Um, uh, I, you know, I, the fact that he took these ideas to Moscow after intensive consultation by phone with all of the uh, parties involved suggests to me that this is not some French freelancing, but something which has been canvassed and has found at least some acceptance among Western leaders, including the United States. Um, but then, um, you know, we will have another contact, I think, after that between President Macron and President Putin, probably by, by video conference to, to give him a, a response. We'll also have a meeting in Berlin, possibly later today or tomorrow, uh, involving President Macron with German Chancellor Scholz, who will be back from Washington by then, and the, importantly, the president of Poland, um, uh, President Duda, because Poland is, you know, a hardliner within NATO. It's been, uh, it's the, 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 the champion of the cheerleaders of Ukrainian membership of NATO. It's also the country uh, which is, you know, among those most concerned by any concession to Russia, uh, because uh, it lived in a previous uh, incarnation as part of in, in the in the Soviet Empire, so um, uh, that it's important um, uh, that as the voice of Central Europe that, that Poland is present. And President Duda has also just come back from Peking, where he alone, uh, among uh, European uh, leaders, attended the uh, uh, Olympic opening ceremony. Um, which some either boycotted or choose not, chose not to attend. They didn't like to call it a boycott. So, you know, he'll have some view as to where the Chinese stand in all of this and whether, um, you know, the Chinese are really um, piling in on Russia's side or whether there is some wiggle room there as well to help to have the Chinese also put pressure on Russia not to create precedents that would uh, cause international tension. Jamie, yeah. uh, final word from my, you? My, my, yeah, my, my final word for today on, on that, Tracy. Uh, uh, Paul, again, I think has mapped out the uh, the plan of scenario well. Uh, in, in terms of, you know, basic uh, uh, principles or basic sort of uh, operational assumptions, I think number one, 
Uh, we've got to continue to do everything we can. I say we talking about NATO, the West in general, uh, to deter uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, you know, keep the sanctions package. You're really looking solid and firm. No wobbling on that one. Continue to support the Ukraine forces while pointing out that all of this is defensive. Uh, the Ukrainians will only use these weapons if they are attacked by uh, Russia. Uh, pointing out uh, the consequences for Russia uh, of getting bogged down into a hapless uh, attempt to occupy the country. Uh, we know from Afghanistan that although the Russian invasion went ahead, uh, there were large numbers of Russian Soviet generals at the time who were telling Brezhnev and the Soviet leadership, don't go there, don't do it. OK, they were overridden. But the more we can get today's generation of Russian generals to be telling Putin, look, Vladimir, you know, this isn't the best sort of course of action for us. Uh, you know, if, it's not easy in an authoritarian regime like Russia to generate that kind of debate. But the more doubts we can plant in the, the minds of the Russian leadership, all of the oligarchs that stand to lose a lot of their money and so on, uh, the better, I think. So the first aspect is continue to do what we can to deter the invasion. Second aspect is strengthen NATO. Uh, because you never know if Russia did invade Ukraine, whether the conflict might spill over uh, onto uh, NATO territory. So NATO has an obligation to defend its members. And I think what we've seen recently, you know, Germany, the UK, the US, uh, France, all sending additional forces, not great numbers, nothing provocative, but forces which beef up NATO's uh, for defence. That's something that has to be uh, followed uh, too. Number three, uh, you know, continue to do what we can to reduce our vulnerabilities to Russia, gas, energy, so that, that that instrument can work less in the future. And finally, I'm not against, you know, Paul, Paul's point is a valid one. I'm not against talking to Russia. We, we you know, NATO-Russia Council has met. There's been more talking to Russia the last couple of weeks and probably over the last two years. We have to have that dialogue, but we have to turn it into a generalized dialogue on European security in general, which should be about Western interest. You know, we've got interests as well. You know, Henry Kissinger famously said that absolute security for the Soviet Union is absolute insecurity for everybody else. Russia can't say that, you know, the, the whole European security system has to be totally reorganized around its own exaggerated sense of what it needs for its own security. And nobody else's interest can possibly be taken into account. This is, this is a really, um, you know, a very, very egocentric, uh, uh, to say the least. So we need a dialogue where everything is on the table, arms control, transparency measures. And, and I hope that rather than, you know, see this dialogue as purely making concessions on Ukraine, uh, it could be a more generalized dialogue about what we could do to to reduce the influence of the military factor in Europe. And finally, Tracy, final thing, whatever happens, we need some kind of resolution because what we're seeing at the moment is mini resolutions. And six months later, Putin does it again. You know, this is not the first time that he's uh, uh, massed these troops on the Ukrainian frontier. We just can't keep stumbling, you know, every six months to a Putin-driven crisis, uh, paralyzing European diplomacy for months at a time. We need some kind of de-escalation where things remain de-escalated. Thank you very much for that. Um, let's take a view on, on where we are this time next week. I'd like to say thank you to our two speakers today, Paul Taylor and Jamie Shea. Thank you to you, our audience, for listening. This is the first of our Frankly Speaking podcast series brought to you by Friends of Europe.